Welcome to Action Potential. I'm Sahan Ranamukharachi. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of change. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show again. Today, I'm here with Dr. Jeff Wessler, the CEO of Heartbeat Health and a cardiologist out of New York. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Sahan. Nice to be here. Hi, everyone. Um, just out of curiosity, where are you located right now? There's a lot of screens behind you. I am in the uh, esteemed supply closet uh, where I, uh, I camp out sometimes and especially to do some podcasts. Excellent. Excellent. Out of, I, I, I'm glad you picked this location for this, Jeff. Um, I, uh, I always like to give the best for these, uh, especially <laughs> when there's video here. So, so just to be, just to be, uh, uh, brutally honest, it's not a virtual background. It's a, it's an actual closet, <laughs> which is perfect. Um, the life of a doctor, uh, an entrepreneur, um, Jeff, I'm so glad to have you on our show. Um, you know, uh, Cardiology is a big uh, topic of interest of ours uh, in the Action Potential podcast. Uh, we want to uncover so many things about remote physiological monitoring, and I think the, there's probably you're probably one of the best people we can speak to about this. But before we get too deep into the topic, I'd love for you to give an introduction to yourself and you know, kind of talk us through some early influences that got you to where you are right now and you know, help our listeners understand who Dr. Jeff Wessler is. Sounds great. Um, and likewise, I, I appreciate the opportunity for this conversation. I, I think um, I've been uh, a fan of what you're up to and uh, consider ourselves in a shared space where there is an amazing amount of exciting activity. So hopefully we'll shed some light on that today. Um, so my name is Jeff uh, Wessler. I'm a cardiologist in New York, uh, have been in the health tech space for about a decade now, first in the academic setting, um, and then uh, as the CEO and founder of Heartbeat Health, which is a virtual cardiology company. Um, <clears throat> we've been working really at this uh, this uh, um, co-mingled space between clinical care, technology, and then remote uh, uh, physiology, per monitoring, and remote care, uh, all of which has uh, changed dramatically over the past five years uh, with an especial, especially, I think, prominent change post-COVID. Um, and we've, uh, at Heartbeat, taken the cardiovascular uh, approach to things to say, how do we really apply technology to cardiovascular care, cardiology, heart care, uh, to do better by our patients um, and especially reach patients who are struggling to access the right care right now right T tell us a little so when did you start uh, heartbeat health uh, jeff yeah so heartbeat was started in 2017 um, i was uh, on faculty at uh, uh, columbia uh, in the cardiology division um, and this uh, was heartbeat as a concept was based on a lot of work that i was doing in the academic world with remote care programs and how we deliver care in, in more adaptive ways to what patients need. Uh, ultimately spun Heartbeat out and uh, uh, brought it to market as an independent company 
Um, and this was pre-COVID, so things looked a lot different. Uh, the experience at the time was much more focused on a modern cardiology experience as our hook to get patients. And as things evolved, uh, took the turn to remote or virtual cardiology as our niche and our value proposition to bring cardiovascular care uh, to the masses. Right. And so I'm guessing COVID actually helped you a lot in terms of people realizing that they could receive the appropriate care they needed and the touch points from 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 the home. Is that correct? Yeah, that that's right. So, you know, COVID, I think, was in general a an accelerant to all telecare uh, businesses and practices and um, uh, concepts. Specifically, though, it became uh, really a a way to narrow our focus at Heartbeat and say, uh, uh, help, it, re- it really helped us narrow in on what our true value proposition was to the market, who we should be selling to in the market, and how we should build a business. So I think at, at a generalist level, uh, COVID transitioned the world to say telemedicine is not a barrier anymore. Uh, there are ways to use it and there are ways to deliver care remotely. Um, the few years after that then demonstrated how we can use the different tools in telemedicine, including remote monitoring, to really benefit specific populations focused on specific disease states or conditions and actually generate results rather than just you know business model success. Mm-hmm. Jeff, so if we can create two versions of a patient journey before COVID and after COVID or during during slash after COVID, what would those look like? Can you give us a little bit of a, uh, a picture of what cardiovascular care, what model you envisioned when you started in 2017 and how you implemented that pre-2020 and how has it evolved to now? Yeah, absolutely. From a so, patient perspective, if you, if you will. Yeah. So, so let me first paint what traditional cardiology looks like because Please, that yeah. still is uh, the status quo and and has honestly not changed all that much pre post covid uh, the traditional cardiology experience is one in which cardiologists and cardiology care is two things number one very much a reactive specialty uh, okay. most people get their cardiologist on referral after a cardiac event has happened whether it's something very severe like a heart attack or a stroke or a heart failure um, or it's reactive to specific symptoms that one is experiencing, like chest pain or palpitations or breathing issues. Uh, someone gets referred, gets a, an appointment with a cardiologist, which often takes many months to schedule because it's a very uh, um, uh, high-demand specialty. It, uh, they will go into a physical, or I've started calling it a terrestrial office, to get their care. Um, the Diagnostic testing usually happens after that first visit, which introduces another set of wait, uh, waiting period or waiting time to get scheduled uh, for that patient. Then you get some results and then you get initiated on actual therapy and care downstream. Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID, Heartbeat's model was, let's make that experience better. Let's still have an in-person clinic. We had a a um, a nice clinic on the Upper West Side that was bringing patients in, but we said let's do two things. Number one, you get every you get all the testing on that first that one visit, so it's a one visit okay. for all type of experience instead of the multiple different touch points over time. And number two, 
let's use technology to make it better for you to experience that care. Come in and or get your appoint, schedule your appointment online and get text message reminders and be able to interact asynchronously, um, get all your results delivered to you and your care plan ongoing. So that was what I'd call incrementally better than the, um, uh, the existing traditional experience. And it, it certainly worked pretty well. We grew a, a several thousand patient practice um, in, in fairly fast time. Uh, and we were having some success there as a business mm-hmm. model. But what we were not, what we were finding is that we were not achieving any of the, the right patients or right outcomes as the, that, that had frankly been the reason that we all got into this, which was bending the curve on cardiovascular outcomes and improving care. And so the, the main reason you were for seeing... that. Oh, go on. Yeah, Finish go your thought. So the main reason for that, just to say, is we were, we were lovingly seeing the wrong patients. We were seeing patients who did not really need cardiology care, but patients who wanted to experience a better type of service or a, you know, a fad healthcare experience. Right. So I was just going to ask, like, that that model that you had rolled out initially sounds like it was really good for the patient. They probably felt like they got everything in one go, probably more 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 touch points within that short amount of time that allowed them to feel good about the, you know, this new specialty of care that they are now starting to embark on. Um, but in terms of the patients that still showed up, they still have, I'm guessing, had their heart attack or, you know, it was still the, the process of needing a cardiologist was still probably the same. Yeah, that, that that's right. It was, I mean, it was twofold. It was patients who had already had an event and therefore early care was going to be less impactful. Um, or it was patients who wanted to experience this type of care, but who were not high enough risk to really see the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. And to, to cut a long story short, what we ultimately figured out over time was cardiovascular care needs were greatest in the Medicare and Medicare Advantage spaces um, in the U.S. And that's where we needed to focus as a company, as a business, as a practice, if we wanted to really impact the populations in the right way. And similarly, we needed to bring a model that could serve the pain points in this population. And COVID helped us realize and focus on a remote care model or a virtual care model as the, uh, the, the true best value proposition for those members. So how does a patient actually get engaged with you now post COVID and how do, how does their experience differ from the previous version? Yeah. So now post COVID there are two big differences. Number one, the terrestrial clinic is gone. So this is a virtual only uh, experience. Um, You can still, you still get testing and need testing and, physical care environments, but that those don't have the cardiologists in the room doing that care. Those happen through imaging centers and primary care partners or home delivered diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And then number two, um, this is not a direct to patient uh, uh, practice anymore. Though patients still can sign up directly, 95% of our patients come from our partnerships uh, with referring partners and uh, risk-bearing provider groups that are seeing patients in mass at the primary care level or at the health system or payer level who have 
cardiovascular needs that we can help address. So how do they? So how do the, How does a primary care physician or a payer group then refer patients to you before, say, they like they're probably doing all the numbers to find out that there are certain types of patients who have maybe hypertension, high triglyceride. I don't know whatever the uh, whatever yeah. the combination of things are that are that put them at high risk of you know needing cardiology care in in the near future, and then they refer them to you. Yeah, let me let me give you a good example. So. Um, Atrial fibrillation is something that most people have heard about at this point because it has been it, it is all over the place now that most consumer wearables can detect or many consumer wearables at least can detect arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. Um, atrial fibrillation, I'll call it AFib, is important because it's an arrhythmia that leads to downstream important and potentially devastating. Uh, uh, consequences like strokes or heart failure. Um, and finding it early is not only important because we want to know about it, but there are therapies and treatment we can give that can directly impact and reduce those downstream events like strokes. Mm-hmm. So um, this, so we have now a, run a, a very large uh, uh, atrial fibrillation program that we bring to primary care groups that says we can help you identify members in your population who are at risk for AFib, we can then get them a diagnostic test to determine if they have atrial fibrillation. And that's a home-delivered patch that you wear on your skin for two weeks and then send it back in a box and we interpret it. Um, If you've got an arrhythmia, which could be AFib, but there are many others that are clinically significant, then we'll do a televisit and talk you through um, what uh, we found what care is needed and what's next. And then in many cases, we will start medications and therapy and manage patients for um, for many months to come. So that that's the way that we have programmatized the care that we deliver so that a primary care group or a payer can now offer that as an out-of-the-box solution for their members without having to uh, think about the more traditional symptom-based referral mechanism to cardiology. That, and uh, well, that sounds, I can totally see the appeal of that um, to, to detect early and get people on the right medications early if there are such risk factors, because I would assume as a cardiologist, you have all the tools needed if the proper diagnosis is made ahead of time instead of, you know, scrapping for resources at the end when everything's, you know, you know on the line. Can you talk me through a little bit of the economics of this program? Like, you yeah. know, what today this happens and therefore the total cost of care for a year for one of these patients, if we don't catch it early, is this as opposed to if you catch it, we can. So from a payer standpoint, what really get them excited to constantly refer patients earlier and earlier and send these patches home? Yeah, a great question. And the, the economics I have come to, learn along with many others is really the key to these programs taking off. There are actually lots of good early management detection and management concepts and programs right there out there. If they don't come with a clear return on investment for the payer or for the risk bearing provider, then they can never have the economic support to take off. So AFib, we do a, a few that are sort of slam dunk ROI programs. 
Okay. One of them is the AFib one I just said. Another is a yeah. structural heart disease program. Um, and the way those work is very clearly that uh, the there is a predictable rate of uh, of f disease finding or conditions that we identify and manage. Uh, there is a predictable rate of reduction of high cost events like strokes and heart failure hospitalizations. Uh, and then there is a you know known or negotiated price for all of the care that goes in that. And in most cases that yields at least a three to one ROI in some of our bigger programs, it's closer to nine to one. So um, that data bears out a little differently depending on which population we're talking about um, and how enriched it is for cardiovascular patients or not. Um, but ultimately, uh, within that, the initiation of a program, we really need to be able to demonstrate and have demonstrated that this is cost effective uh, for whoever is bearing the costs of it. The three to one to nine, nine to one, these, these look amazing. Uh, so Jeff, as a startup, when you, when you guys got started on the developing these programs, you must've run the numbers based on what's already in the claims databases and, uh, and I'm assuming by now, having implemented these programs, you've seen in real life, if those numbers that you've probably run prior to kicking off the programs were actually, those were your hypotheses you were testing against. If, how, how have they compared? Yeah, so, so fortunately for us, the numbers have you know, proved to be much higher and better than we anticipated. And I think that was valuable because when we started, we went in somewhat conservative about making yeah. sure this would work, uh, knowing that in every single case, we want to pitch something that um, that get, goes on from pilot to rollout stage. And so we want those numbers to exceed expectations. And that's important just from a business strategy of getting our, um, our product and our solution out there. The reality is that in the uh, case of arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, um, the prevalence or the um, the amount of uh, the burden of AFib that we're finding exceeded, was well, well higher than we anticipated. And I think that has to do with the fact that um, the risk is much higher than literature and that the, 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 the evidence-based would suggest because risk factors are on the rise. Um, cardiovascular comorbidities are on the rise and we're now getting better at detecting AFib. So we actually are finding much, much more of it than we thought. And that's quite actionable. And therefore, uh, and the therapies are getting better at preventing those downstream events. So it, it, it's all, all tailwinds are pointing to programs like this that have clear ways to detect it, good therapies to help prevent those downstream events. Um, those are the types of programs that will will succeed here. Um, well, congratulations. That's That seems, for me, it seems very, very... Um it seems very promising in that in that that's exactly what you'd hope for right because the the roi predictions based on claims data are still managed are still predictions based on the environment in which the care was delivered to your point earlier if it was still still delivered under very traditional care where you know all things that a patient goes through are not properly considered uh in in delivering that care and you could see that 
you know, you could still get ROIs that are promising. Uh, you could definitely have higher touch points, which then brings in a lot more factors that can influence uh, the ROIs you could get in reality. So um, uh, that's that's really, um, I'm really glad to hear that, uh, particularly from a technology developer standpoint, this is exactly the kind of thing you want to you wanna hear. So congratulations on that. Um, and in terms of like in terms of patient satisfaction in being part of your program, uh, how, how are they finding it, uh, Jeff? Because I assume this, yeah. you know, AFib affects a lot of people from different, you know, um, demographics, you know, age groups and, and, and ethnicities, for example. And, and, you know, I assume that you have a very diverse patient pool in your, uh, under your care now. Yeah. Um, an, another good one, I think patient experience is so critical here. And um, in many ways, we built out what we thought would be a good patient experience, but you never know until you're really live and doing it. Um, so we've been, we've, we're fairly um, obsessive about capturing NPS and making sure that uh, we're improving it. We've got a you know fantastic NPS uh, across our different populations. Um, and uh, that's key because most of the groups that we work with are Medicare Advantage uh, type plans that member retention over year over year is really important. So uh, a program that has economic benefit but but causes members to have bad experiences will never be able to sustain itself. And we've been pretty key to make sure this one works. The nice thing in cardiology is that the traditional experience is so in general, so negative in terms of um, either you're ending up in the hospital or uh, you've got to come in for a, a, a con confusing series of testing over a long period of time. So it was uh, there was a lot to be improved on with a program like this. <laughs> I can imagine the st the status quo is by by all means is one that any everyone, including the patients, interested in beating. So. Uh, all, all good, really, really strong tailwinds. Now, of course, part of the program you described has to do with sending, doing risk stratification. But once you get the patients, people identified, then you move into tech enablement in terms of sending, you, you call them patches on skin for two weeks. I want to double click into that, of course. And, and can you walk us through a little bit about what you do have capability to do now? Um, yep. How do how do how do the patients like uh, having something on them? And three, maybe uh, you spoke about you know once you get the data, you have a lot of things that you can implement, including medications. Okay, let's can we just dive into those three things: uh, the technology, the patients, and then the actions that you take out of this. Yeah. yeah so the um, all of this is possible now because the of the technology. Uh, advances that have taken place in the last five to seven years in cardiology. So um, it it is really amazing if you went back a decade to get even the simplest cardiac monitoring would require testing in a in a office that looked clunky and was you know one uh, one test had to serve hundreds or thousands of patients and it it. Um, it it was not even close to being set up for a remote care environment or world. COVID accelerated all of that, fortunately, in that all of the many of the diagnostic companies and the IDTFs began 
making um, diagnostic uh, uh, experiences that could be sent directly to a home. Um, and so that has been uh, spectacular to see it, it, that then take off in the forms of these programs because now all of a sudden you can get a device out to somebody's home. Um, in some cases, the same day, it can be read and interpreted and sent back. In other cases, they can wear it for a few weeks or depending on what information you're trying to gather, especially about the heart, uh, any, any number of configurations can take place. Um, the can, patient, can you give me, oh, yeah, go ahead. Can you give me ex one example of a device you use and how it integrates with your care delivery team? Yeah, definitely. So one of the devices we use um, for this program that I just spoke about, the AFib one, um, is iRhythm's um, Zeo patch, uh, which right. is a, uh, a patch of, uh, about the size of a big Band-Aid that, you, that uh, you stick on yourself for a couple weeks. Um, and it's just an amazing technology. It's, it's backed by you know, billions of billions of data points, um, has one of the strongest uh, diagnostic correlations. And then the experience is, um, is really incredible for the patients. We hear time and time again just how easy it is to apply and how, how um, uh, uh, patients actually really like doing it. It's a satisfying experience overall. Uh, so the, that, that, in fact, it was, the Zeo patch specifically has really paved the way for the rhythm um, monitoring fields to be able to say uh, this this type of these condition sets can now be completely managed remotely until an in-person uh, procedure like an ablation or an EP study is needed. Right. And if, uh, if, if an EP study is needed, uh, hypothetically speaking, what do you, what do you do? I mean, you mentioned medications. Um, I'm generally aware of, you know, the type of medications that are used in, in cardiology, uh, but could you give us examples of how the patch leads to actionability, particularly from a cardiologist's perspective on the type of therapies you'd like to give to your patients? Yeah, so the, the patch does a couple of things. It makes a definitive diagnosis of an arrhythmia like AFib. It then okay. tells you how serious it is. Is it one blip of AFib in two weeks or is it someone who's having 99% of their heartbeats are in AFib? Um, that burden makes a big difference. It also tells you, is it symptomatic or not? Lots of people don't know they're in AFib, and some people do know and can identify exactly when their heart's in AFib. All of those go into the treatment considerations, um, and there are multiple different realms of treatment from stroke prevention to heart rate control to rhythm control, trying to keep someone in their normal rhythm or get them out of their rhythm. And one of the ultimate uh, treatments, should the other the other treatment options not work, is uh, getting someone something called an ablation, which is when you go in with a set of catheters and actually try to fix the area of the heart that is causing um, uh, the atrial fibrillation. But, so we but the ablation would of, be a ablation would be a much more expensive procedure to do compared to you know uh, prescribing certain types of medications. Exactly. Um, ablations are the like in, in, the, we, you know the end stage of this that we want to try to keep people away from, uh, right. and can often do so if if we can get ahead of this sooner. 
Right. And during the prescribing of the medications, you said hypothetically rhythm control, uh, having the Zeo patch on while you're prescribing these new medications to that patient makes a ton of sense. Is that something that you also do? Like the, the device use is not just for the, the purpose of diagnosis, but also for monitoring. Yeah, it's, um, it is used for monitoring, but in somewhat different ways. Uh, there are okay. devices that can be worn all the time uh, and, ah, or, okay. or used all the time, in which, in which case you can really get real-time monitoring. That's not needed for most patients. Most patients, there's a fairly standard um, uh, algorithm, if you will, for what's needed after you get your initial diagnosis and burden of AFib. And then you can check again, do a spot check of a two weeks, but continuous monitoring is only relevant for a sliver of the population. Got it. Uh, can we, thank you for walking me through that, um, tech patients and medications, which is great. Can we talk a little bit about gaps that exist in the current current care? Because we've spoken about patients who might be at risk of cardiovascular disease, but we know cardiovascular disease doesn't come alone. Uh, typically, it comes with, you know, renal failure, diabetes, hypertension. These people that have these risks are often quite complex. So, so what are some of the big gaps that you face in your current practice when you're looking at a, a patient who has a lot of other conditions that you need to consider? Yeah, so I love this question because I, I truly think that um, the next five years of health care and health technology will come to the realization that managing conditions in isolation is a misguided approach. It may have been necessary for building up some of the practice models we see today, but as you just said, there is no such thing as having cardiovascular disease in isolation. It comes with a metabolic syndrome. It comes with renal issues, kidney issues. Um, it comes with all, all sorts of and a whole host of uh, other comorbid issues that need to be managed. And the opposite is true, too. For patients who might not be thought of as cardiac patients because they have renal failure or um, uh, uh, you know, chronic kidney disease need to have their cardiometabolic issues managed proactively to stay ahead of it. So exactly. I, I think that one, the place where we are most missing opportunity right now is for a proactive bundling of these conditions that actually understands the benefit of identifying them early, managing them early, and then wow. reducing the progression of uh, 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 all of the conditions in parallel over time. Yeah. One of the things that prompted me to ask this question, Jeff, is in heart failure itself, so you, you have this patient that you assess the risk of AFib, you realize you put the patch on, you realize they might be at risk of heart failure, and there are guideline-directed medications you can use for heart failure, but if they have concomitant renal disease, uh, we've seen that the guidelines actually suggest very cautious approaches to prescribing classes of therapies uh, due to kidney dysfunction or kidney disease. And that makes life inherently very difficult for cardiologists as well as a nephrologist. But guidelines are still, as, as written now, are still quite optimistic. But in real life, uh, the prescribing patterns are quite grim in that most medications are not appropriately used. So 
I just, uh, from, from your perspective, this is an area of interest for me, as you know, um, in, in remote physiological monitoring, but I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, on that in terms of real world prescribing, what are some of the big gaps in physiology that you find today? Yeah, so you you hit on it. So in the real world, not only are we years behind where the evidence uh, has taken us from uh, what guideline-directed medical therapy should be prescribed and, and used on patients, but we're even more years behind how to tailor that to specific populations. And the heart failure kidney population um, is not a small one. It's a huge one. And it's, a, it's one that is uh, right now you know, a decade behind where it should be in terms of how we think about uh, tailoring medications and being uh, not just writing off to get specific the ability to use a, you know, a, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in a heart failure patient uh, because they have CKD. Many prescribers and providers um, sort of block off a kidney patient who has heart failure as someone who can't get certain classes of medicine. And in fact, it's much more nuanced than that, and there needs to be an, an, uh, a fairly aggressive push to actually get people and patients on the right set of medications, despite having uh, a more difficult path to, to prescribing them. One of the things I really uh, looked forward to in speaking to you, I mean, we've on the show, we've spoken to quite a lot of nephrologists. Nephrologists are often very excited by the number of therapies that are coming out to market, which is which you know, in, in reality, it is the golden era of nephrology we're entering into. There's a lot of activity on the pharma side. But the difference between that and speaking to you, Jeff, is you also have a device aspect, you know, where therapies are ideally tied to monitoring as well. And I think it's safe to say that you're far ahead in the cardiology space in using the two even though you say it's, we're a decade behind, we still have a lot more work to do than, say, in, in the field of nephrology, where the consequences of a patient only having therapies that are suboptimally used is either cardiovascular events or onset of dialysis and earlier onset of dialysis, which is very costly. Um, and so from, from your perspective, uh, what gets you very excited uh, about maybe bridging this gap of being 10 years behind um, as quickly as possible, let's say in the next five to 10 years, uh, so that yep. we have the right tools needed to get the patients on the right medications. Yeah, so I, I think you hit on it. I actually think the diagnostic uh, side of disease management, particularly for some of these chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, like diabetes, um, and potentially like uh, renal failure or CKD, uh, that has been a huge um, uh, tailwind uh, or help to improving prescribing habits and improving um, uh, the, the progress we're making toward these diseases. And one of the main reasons why is that it puts the data, it puts information uh, in front of both the patient and the providers who are managing these patients. So you can't help but use it to help manage it. And I, I think as an example, to use a, a space I'm less biased about in the diabetes space, um, when CGM or continuous glucose monitoring came to market, it fundamentally changed how we were seeing and managing diabetics or how the fields were managing diabetics. And not necessarily because that data was gave us groundbreaking new insights in how to care for diabetes, 
but because it pushed it to be front of mind at, to the patients who were wearing their monitors and to the providers who were receiving that data to say, oh, I now, I now really, you know, have a, uh, a another driving force saying it's not just because the guidelines are telling me that I have to up titrate this medication, but I'm seeing the numbers and I'm seeing the diagnostic results. Cardiology, same way. When the rhythm monitors began to be more pervasive, the uh, the, the prescription and the getting people on guideline-based um, rhythm monitoring therapies went went through the roof. And I believe that see that nephrology will see the same thing if we can bring diagnostics to the forefront and say, um, we've now got data to help us show that we need to be more aggressive about the management. Is there any having is there are there any key lessons learned in how to build so without having to have a device come to market, because we know that's very expensive and it takes time. Are there any best practices that we could have or any key learnings to build up that um, that community, that expectation uh, from a medical care practice perspective? Because, you know, change management in healthcare is very, very difficult. Changing minds of how people practice is quite difficult. So without actually seeing the data, they're not going to act. But if the issues are quite prominent in bridging the gaps between diabetes, heart failure, and renal. Do you think having successful devices for monitoring in diabetes and heart failure should hopefully make the journey a little bit easier for renal? Do you have any sense of optimism on that front, Jeff? Yeah, I have a lot of sense of optimism and I think it'll work for renal and a lot of conditions will follow. Um, I, what, what I will say is that the, a piece of advice to sort of the field as it's growing is to focus on focus on the data and focus on building evidence uh, that uh, you can then use to educate both providers and patients. So um, things that are based on real studies and real outcomes and have a real physiologic reason to work are much, much better than things that maybe sound right or feel right, but don't have any data. And the, the cardiology gives a nice example for this. The, you know, five or ten years ago, all of these wearables began coming out with um, data like step counts and heart rate variability and uh, various metrics of um, of exercise and activity. And no one knew what to do with all of that data. And so it took then us uh, to go back as a field and say, let's let's actually think through what all these these data points mean. Data just for data's sake doesn't help anyone do better care. It's when you can really tie it to a clinical story that makes sense that you get to, you start seeing the effect of that. Right. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Jeff. Um, and in, as a last question, um, what's, what's next for Heartbeat Health and the, and the work that you do? Uh, is it venturing into a more comprehensive care across metabolic syndrome as opposed to just heartbeat. I mean, everything stops with the heart. So I, I, I like, I like the, I, I really like the name of your company, Heartbeat Health. Um, and so, but is the is the future for Heartbeat Health now that you've had success through these programs, now to grow into other areas as well that touches the renal patients on one side, the diabetes on the other side. Yeah. So actually, yes. The the bundling of care is a big area of our, our focus for the next couple of years. Um, 
uh, and it will come on multiple sides. It'll come on the sleep side. It'll come on the kidney side. Um, it'll, and then it'll come on the metabolic side, uh, all areas where we feel that our, the patients we're managing are, are dealing with those conditions um, as, much or, uh, as much as they're dealing with their heart conditions. And so bringing in management for those will, will improve our patients' journey and improve the outcomes. Thank you very much, Jeff, uh, for joining us today. Uh, it's been a real interesting conversation around the work that you're doing uh, with Heartbeat Health, as well as what the future of cardiology care looks like. Um, and yeah, we, we really appreciate having you here um, to shine some light into the, into the subjects. Thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening.